Is Jesus really the only way to God? How can a loving God save some and not others? What would Jesus say to my LGBTI friends? Can I trust the Bible? How can a good God allow suffering? How can I find God's will for my life? Can I lose my faith and what can I do to grow it? If God is sovereign, do we actually have free will? Can women lead in the church? How would a Christian approach sex and dating? You're listening to the Caroline Springs Anglican Podcast. I was thinking about this afternoon and there's something particularly painful about in-family in arguments. Arguments that occur between family members. There's something particularly hurtful or at least the potential for divisiveness and for pain is much higher than arguments we have with strangers. I remember um, one particular weekend, I, I got into this stand-up argument slash fight with three guys at an indoor netball facility because they were, every time Renee was cheering, they were like swearing at it. So we kind of squared up. And, um, and by that night, I was sleeping like a baby because who cares? I don't even know those guys. But the very same weekend, I got into this terrible argument with my little brother and it, it destroyed me. Like It's all I could think about for ages. The potential for hurt when um, close relationships are disrupted by arguments is much greater than, than the arguments we have with strangers. And the difference between last week's question and this week's question is that last week's question was kind of a, not a it's not an in-house argument. The question of whether Jesus is the only way to God is not something that Christians disagree about. It's something that that Christians and unbelievers might disagree about, or certainly do disagree about. But this question this week is something that Christians disagree about. This is an in-house thing. This is an in-family argument. And I think it's caused a lot of pain and a lot of divisiveness. Now, at one level, that's okay, because the cause of truth is worth pursuing, even if it causes division, even if it causes pain. But we, as I said last week, we want to come at these questions with a kind of posture that minimizes the potential for divisiveness as much as possible. And so while we might, and while tonight I might say things with, with quite a bit of conviction, because I've been convinced of them as truth, We don't want the tone to become in any way arrogant or overbearing. So let me just say from the beginning, tonight you can leave this uh, service and say, I don't agree with anything that guy said. You can do that. Um, Christians differ on this question and there are several questions we're going to be talking about in this series where Christians can differ. This isn't a salvation issue, but because it's a question about salvation, it's an important issue. And what I would like us to do is just come to this question with as much humility as we can, and as best as we're able to leave our presuppositions and our preconceived ideas behind us and just say, just now, for the next, however long it is, 45 minutes or whatever, just now, Lord, please shape my heart and change me Change my thoughts, change my ways to be more aligned with your, the truth that you've revealed. As much as we're able, we don't want this to be um, anything about sort of philosophical um, extrapolations or, um, or, or speculations, but we want this to be about revelation. What has God said to us in his word? And what do we need to change about our thinking, our way of relating to him and one another in accordance with his word. So with that in mind, let's look at the question. Second question in our series, how can a loving God save some and not others? And if you're looking at me tonight and thinking, that guy needs a rest, you know, those bags under his eyes are normally pretty big, but they're really big this week, that's because this is a heavy question to carry And what I'm going to ask you to do now is to ask God for some strength 
enough strength for you to be able to concentrate and grapple with what is a heavy question. I've been lugging it around this week, and it's heavy, but it's important. So what I want to do is just look at the question, and there's, there's two obvious um, premises that are in that question, and I want to test those and then hopefully be able to answer the question. So the two premises are this. One, God is loving, and two, he saves some and not others. That he's the agent that determines who is saved and who isn't. So let's just test those two things, okay? First of all, is God loving? And this is the most important thing for us to get to terms with, and it's the thing we'll spend the least amount of time coming to terms with. It's the most important thing for you to come to terms with because if I, if I had to choose between the two premises that you would embrace and hold dear and grab a hold of forever, it would be this first one. I want you to believe that God is loving. Even more than that, as we'll see in a minute, that God is love. That's the most important thing you're going to hear tonight. And so the, the best place for us to go in the Scriptures to find out about God's love is really anything that John wrote. John is obsessed with God's love. He identifies himself in his gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's the way he related most to Jesus. And in his gospel and in his letters, he speaks often about the love of God. And so in 1 John Chapter 4 is what he says. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his son as atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So the three most important words in that passage, what are they? God is love. Not just God is loving But God is love. He defines love. He embodies love. And therefore, because he is love, all of his attributes and his actions flow from that place of love. To say that God is love means that he is always thinking and acting in loving ways towards us. He doesn't ever stop in his love. The way he thinks about us, the way he acts towards us. He is love. And this is a great help to us in answering this question because we don't know what we're talking about when we talk about love. You ask 10 different people on the street what love is about and you get 10 different answers. It is very subjective and that's why it is the key concept in so much pop culture, in the songs that we sing, in the books that we read. What is love? I know if we look at my life, 36 years now, you will see this ongoing attempt to love all the while screwing it up. And so it's essential, if we're going to answer the question before us tonight, that we know what love is. What is the objective definition of love? And John says the objective definition that isn't tainted by culture isn't tainted by your experience or your pain or anything else. The objective definition is God himself. God is love. And so if we ever find ourselves saying to ourselves, my God wouldn't be like that God that I read about in the Bible, or that it can't be loving for God to act in that way that I read in the Bible, then what needs to change is not what God has done, but our concept of what is good and what is loving. All right? So it's plain to see, and we've only looked at one text out of several 
text that we could look at. It's plain to see that God is not only loving, but that he is love. He defines love. So the second part of the question is, does he save some and not others? That is, we know that some people are saved and some aren't, but is it God's agency at work that determines whether some are saved and some aren't? And this is a much grittier question for us to ask. And this is really the nub of the disagreement among Christians. All Christians believe that God is loving, but Christians disagree about whether this is true, whether God is the primary agent in whether someone is saved or not. And so the question we need to ask ourselves to begin with is, who is ultimately responsible for our standing before God? Who is ultimately responsible for the fact that I know God and love God and have been saved by God? That's the question. To put it another way, when you get to heaven and, uh, I don't know, St. Peter is there and he says, why are you here? How do you answer that question? Why are you here? Why do you believe? Who is responsible? Fundamentally, when you drill down to the bottom, who is responsible for you being saved as opposed to your brother who isn't, your neighbor who isn't, your friend who isn't? And I think that God's revealed word is very clear about this. Yes, it's true that there's disagreement, but I don't think it's for lack of clarity. This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. He says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. All the Christians say amen. We print it on coffee cups, we put it on posters, motivational calendars. Not everyone loves the next verses. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And he continues, and those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified in theology, it's called the golden chain of salvation, that that Paul puts together this chain that goes from eternity past in God foreknowing us and predestining us through our being saved and justified and on into our glorification. That is what we become when Jesus returns and gives us a resurrection body, ushers in the new kingdom. And he makes this chain that's unbroken and it starts with God and continues with God and ends with God. So that if we understand Paul rightly, when that person asks, why are you here? Our answer ought to be God. John said as much in the passage we read before, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. That's why you're a believer. But it might take a little more than that to convince some of you, so we'll take a look at another couple of passages. I think the fundamental determiner of whether you embrace this truth or reject it will depend on your view of God. It's not so much your view of humanity, though we'll get to that in a minute because it's important, but ultimately it's about how you view God that matters. So listen to the words of Isaiah 46. This is what Isaiah says, or God speaking through Isaiah. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. That's the God that we worship. He is God. I love that that's the way he reveals himself. We saw this last week, remember? Who, Moses says, who should I say have sent me to Pharaoh? I am. No further explanation needed. Eternal, 
pre-existent, sovereign, I will do all that I please. Now, when a human says that, it's often because he's a dictator, a tyrant. But because God is love, all that he pleases is good. There is a... It started about a decade ago. I can't believe it's still going. But this open theist theology that's becoming more and more popular that says God doesn't really know the future. He doesn't know what's going to come to pass. And he kind of has to respond constantly to what we're doing and how we're doing it. I don't know if they just didn't read Isaiah 46. I make known the end from the beginning. That is, I know everything from start to finish. We can be at the very beginning and I'll tell you everything that happens to the end because I'm God. Oh, but you have, to, you have to mold yourself around us and our will and what we want and what we do. I am God. There is none like me. My purpose will stand. I will do all that I please. Colossians chapter 1, Paul says, God works all things in accordance with his will. He's not asking our permission for stuff. Jimmy's going to talk more about this and he's going to address this uh, second half of the question really, which is if God is sovereign, then do I have free will? That's the question of how his will interacts with our will, so I won't impinge on um, on his message. You might want to come back for that. What we're addressing is, is this the picture of God that the Scriptures gives us? Is he this kind of God? Does he have this kind of power? There have been other cultures and other generations in human history who have been very willing to accept this truth, but not us. Not us. We're not depending on God for our bread each day. We're not under the rule of a king or a queen. We have self-determination. We have as much money as we want. We choose what we do with our life. We've got thousands of options in front of us. And so where other cultures have willingly embraced this vision of God, we have rejected it. That's not my God. He works with me. He's kind of like a co-captain with me. Well, he's more of like an assistant to me, actually. It's just not the picture we find revealed for us. And so if we want to be people of the book, we need to receive the picture that he paints of himself, the self-portrait of God revealed to us in the Scriptures. Listen to what Paul says about God in Ephesians 1. He says, He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us. Now, listen, everyone look at me. Just don't don't look up there for a second. Here's the thing. There are people in our community, and we've had had discussions with some of you before, and maybe this is you tonight. There are some of us for whom that little sentence cannot go together. Paul got the grammar wrong somehow or something. In love he predestined us. For us, for some of us, that is oil and water. If God predestines us, then that's not love. Those things cannot go together. And I remember, just let me tell you this, just in case you think that this is me versus you, I remember sitting in my theology class at university. I'd never heard anything like this before. I went to a good church. They taught the Bible, but they never addressed these kinds of questions. And so I remember just sitting there and, and the lecturer just dropped this on us right before morning tea. And everyone got up and left and I was the dumbest kid in the class and I was just sitting there just speechless. How, how can this be? My vision of God was too small. In love, he predestined us for adoption 
to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Remember, he does all that he pleases and he predestines us in love in accordance with his pleasing, with his pleasure and will. That's the God that we worship. And so I can confidently say, and it doesn't matter where you land on this issue, I can confidently say, your God is too small. Our vision of God is always too small. He is limited by our capacities to begin with, and then he's limited by our obstinance, by our desire for control, self-determination. So the key question is, who is responsible for your standing before God? If you're a Christian, if you can remember time when you weren't a Christian, when you didn't have any desire to know anything about God, you're not going to stand up and sing songs to Jesus. That's ridiculous. You're not going to read the Bible. Waste of time. Is it the biggest waste of time? Prayer. What a load of rubbish. And then you go from that and suddenly... You love gathering with God's people to be encouraged. You love singing praises to God because he's so amazing. You love reading his word because it's like his diary written to you. The ultimate determiner of whether you were the first or the second is God himself. Another way of asking the question is, are we even capable of responding to God? Right, the view of many of us is that God's gospel goes out into the world indiscriminately, and then it's like a it's kind of like a like a net or like a fishing rod. You know, if someone grabs it, then they get saved. Right? The word goes out, if someone responds, then they're saved. A popular image of salvation is, you know, the, the image of a, a person who's drowning. They're drowning and they need they need God to save them, and God puts out his hand over the edge of the boat and if we could just reach up and grab a hold, he'll pull us into the boat. But the problem with the image is that we're not drowning. We've already drowned. We're not drowning desperately looking up to someone to save us. We are on the bottom, decaying being eaten by crabs. And so I believe the Bible teaches the total inability of man to respond to God's gospel. I believe that by our nature, we are incapable of responding to the gospel. And so Paul refers to us in as many words, in Ephesians chapter 2. Here's what he says. As for you, all you people, all you Christians, you are dead. You are dead in your transgressions and sins. That's why you're dead. That's why everyone's dead, because everyone is a transgressor. Everyone's a sinner. And therefore, we are all dead. That's how we were when we followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that's Satan himself, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, likewise, over the page. All of us, likewise, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were, what? You finish it. Huh? Serving of wrath. So this takes us back to the question. What is our, we've talked about our view, what our view of God should be, but what should our view of humanity be? See, my, my experience is that we pull God down to our level and we boost ourselves up a whole lot. We like a, a bit of parity between us and God. You know, me and God, we're kind of the same. I make him in my image so that we can be Kind of similar. We've seen, no, that view of God is too small. He is infinitely bigger than that. And our view of self is way too big. 
Most of us think, well, people are generally good, generally nice. Surely they're capable of responding to God. Paul says, no, you're dead and you're by nature deserving of God's wrath. That's not, that's not uh, you're a really bad person, so you're deserving of God's wrath. That's why we say, well, I'm not Hitler. I haven't killed anyone, right? I love Jews. And Paul says, it's nothing you've done. It's who you are. You are by nature a child of wrath, by nature deserving of wrath. And so when we ask the question, can we respond to God's love? The answer is yes, but we always choose to reject him. Sure, you're given the choice of whether you want to become a Christian. It's just that every single time, 100% of the time, you say, get stuffed. That's because you are by nature and by choice a child of wrath. Which brings us to our, the passage that I want us to look at in most depth. And one of the criticisms leveled at people of the Reformed tradition that I would count myself a member of. Reformed people are people who believe in the sovereignty of God over all things, including salvation. It's the kind of message I'm preaching tonight. One of the things leveled at us is that, oh, you just, you just love what Paul says. Paul, Paul goes on about this stuff all the time, predestination, election, all that stuff. Jesus would never say something like that. And in my view, in my reading, Jesus says the most intense Things, not only about heaven and hell, but about election and predestination, human inability. So this is John chapter 6. This is what Jesus says. And we could read the whole chapter, but there's about, I don't know, 70-something verses. It's all about this stuff. But he's talking to the, the religious leaders, to the Jews. He says this to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Stop. I've had a discussion with someone, an in-house argument about this, and they quoted me this verse and said, look, whoever comes to me, whoever believes in me, it's up to us. Just didn't read the rest of the passage. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. That's the position we all find ourselves in. Yes, we hear Jesus say, whoever comes to me, but we don't come. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. He goes on. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none. Of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. That's resurrection. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this, the Jews there began to grumble. They began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up at the last day. No one can come to me unless the father gives them to me. So I want to look at just a couple of verses in isolation. Part of this, now that we've read it in its context, let's just look at a couple of verses and see if we can make some sense out of this, all right? So John 3.36, he says, As I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. This is the question. Why, when the gospel goes out indiscriminately, do some people respond and others don't? Is it because... We here tonight, we're, just, we're kind of just a little bit better than those people. Like those people out there right now, they're drinking and smoking and having sex with each other. And, and we're in here listening to God's word and being polite to one another and, and nodding and smiling 
and wearing knitted garments. Is that what's, is that what's going on? Jesus says, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. This is John 10. He says to them, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Now, who are the sheep? I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. This is why in Reformed theology, unconditional election, this is what we're talking about tonight, God's choice of us, which is unconditional, not because they smoke and I don't or whatever, but unconditional election, not based on anything I've done. It's been determined before the foundation of the world, marries up and links in with final perseverance. That is, if you have been saved by God, you will remain saved until the day you die or he comes back. They go together because God is not sovereign only over you becoming a Christian, but over you persevering in faith. That's why Jesus says, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. If he is the kind of God who responds to us and has to respect our will and our choices and, you know, maybe I don't want to be a Christian anymore. Well, Jesus says, if you can find someone more powerful than God to pry his fingers open, then yeah. But otherwise, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Why do some claim to follow Jesus and then fall away? Well, in so doing, they're proving that they were never Jesus' sheep. Paul says as much. He says, why did they go out from us? Well, in going out from us, they proved that they were never with us. So people don't believe because they're not Jesus' sheep. Jesus' sheep are those that the Father has given to him. And they are those who persevere in faith to the end. Now, in order for us to believe, God needs to be the fundamental and primary agent in calling us to believe. Like we said, if it's up to you and me responding, we're screwed. We don't have it in us. We don't have the ability or the power or the inclination. We don't want God. That's why Paul says in Romans 5.10, we are enemies of God. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. We don't want him. We never wanted him. And so the difference maker is, has to be God's effectual calling. That is, his calling doesn't just go out like the radio waves and hope that someone picks it up, but it's effectual. It does something. It achieves its purpose. So you and I, all of us, because we're by nature of children of wrath and we have no inclination to turn towards God, all of us are in the very same situation as Lazarus. Remember him? Lazarus, he's in the tomb three days in the Middle East, with no refrigeration. That's why the KJV, the King James Virgin says, he stinketh, all right? He was starting to rot. Now, how able is he to get up and dust himself off a bit, put his nose back on, ear back on, and, uh, <laughs> come on, that's funny, um, and walk out of that tomb? And yet when Jesus comes to the tomb and says, Lazarus, come forth, he gets up and walks out. That is God's effectual calling. That's exactly what has happened to everyone in this room if you're a Christian today. You were dead in the tomb. Jesus said, Victoria, come forth. And at no point 
did you hesitate or resist or say, I'm kind of comfy here? Or No, you just got up and you came forth. This is why it's so important that we get this if we're going to do effective evangelism. If we're going to share the gospel with people, we need to know that it's not my transcendent voice that gets the job done or my memorization of scripture, though that's important, or my charisma, my ability to flirt, to convert, right? That those things are not primary in someone coming to faith. It is God's effectual calling that makes a difference. So any one of us can be used by God to bring someone to faith. Hallelujah. It's also why it actually makes a difference if we pray for people to come to faith. If God's not the agent, then don't talk to him about it. But if he is the primary agent, then pray, God, please open the eyes of my brother Andrew. Bring him to saving faith in Jesus. I know you're the only one who can raise him from the dead. Have mercy. Jesus' love for the elect is specific and effectual. He could have just gone to the countryside and said, everyone, come out of the tomb. But he went to Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth. It was specific. It was effectual. It achieved his purpose. And without the effectual call of God, we will remain dead in the tomb. That's why he says in John six thirty seven. All those the Father gives me will come to me. How do I know? I mean, I I think I've come to God. How do I know for sure that I'm saved? Well, you came, and he never drives out anyone who comes. Praise the Lord. You've been saved. All the Father gives to me, will come to me. This is not up for debate. God's not sitting in heaven going, I'd really like that person to come to faith, but I don't know, he might resist me. No, he won't resist God. He can't resist God. There's a really great example of this in the book of Acts. You might remember we hit it Last year in our series in Acts 13, this is what happens. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heap abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first, since you reject it, And do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles. This is what the Lord has commanded us. I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Now, what's the difference between the Jews and the Gentiles here? If anything, the Jews are much more likely to respond to the preaching of Paul and Barnabas than the Gentiles, the, the Jews rather than the Gentiles, right? They've, they know the Old Testament. They get the references. The Gentiles are like, oh, I don't really know what this guy's saying, right? What's the difference? Why do the Gentiles receive the word of the Lord with joy and gladness and the Jews reject it? Are the Jews like, you know, wearing black and smoking cigarettes and graffitiing the the walls of Jerusalem and the Gentiles are like good church boys? No. If anything, it's the opposite. What's the difference? I mean, you can't really escape from it, can you? All who were appointed for eternal life believed. That's the difference. The Gentiles, in this case, had an appointment. And it was an appointment that was made for them by God. That's the difference. Why do you believe here this morning, uh, tonight? It's because you had an appointment with God. 
And it's not one you're aware of. It was one that was made for you. Now, Jimmy will get more into this in his sermon. I'm not saying you have no say in this and you have no agency and it's, you know, God's just going to manipulate you. I'm not saying any of that. But equally, I'm not saying something that's very popular for people to say that, you know, God would never, you know, contradict our will. God would never overpower our choice. Rubbish. From Genesis to Revelation, you will see God overpowering people's wills and not giving us stuff about whether we wanted him to or not. Praise God for that. Because without that, I'm not here tonight worshipping Jesus. I'm not. I just want you to know that my tone here is I don't mean to castigate anyone or any, what anyone thinks. I just I deeply desire that we would come to terms with this truth only because of my own testimony. My own testimony is that I fully rejected this and it was scandalous to me. And over time, and not in the space of one sermon, but over time, weeks and months, God changed my view of him. I am so glad that he did. I believe much of my affection for God is rooted in this understanding that he is God and there is no other. And so I feel like all we've done now at this point I'm out of time. I feel like all we've done now is establish the first two premises, right? God is love. God chooses those who will come to know him. And we haven't answered the question, how is it loving for him to be that, to be that God? And at this point, as much as it pains me because I love to have all my ducks in a row, and I love to have everything tied off. The conclusion that I have to come to is this God is bigger than my understanding. God is bigger than my understanding. You know, one of the things I say to Jehovah's Witnesses when they come to my door is the reason I don't believe what you believe is because what you believe was literally determined by saying, What is logical, what is illogical in the Bible? What is reasonable, what is unreasonable? What can we understand and come to terms with, and what can't we? Get rid of the stuff we don't understand, and we're going to have a reasonable faith. Well, I don't want to worship a God who I can contain in my brain. That sounds a lot like me than the God of the Bible. And so I think we need to come to terms with this. And I said, you, you can reject what I've said, and, and that's, that's okay. As long as you've come to terms with the text. And I believe at the end of the line, when we've gone through the text and come to terms with the Bible's understanding of who God is, what it reveals about him, there needs to be a point where we just put the book down and say, God is bigger than me. There are things too mysterious for me to understand. Things too great for me to reconcile. Is it in Romans 9 where Paul says that? And it's not Romans 9, it's Romans 11. This is what Paul says. He's coming to terms with the, the, the majesty of God in salvation history, the, 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 the sovereignty of God in, in doing all things according to the purpose of his will. And he ends in a doxology. He says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him from him? And through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Just imagine Paul comes to the end of this, this inspired word about God's sovereignty over all things. And that's all he can do is worship in the end. It's same with Peter in 2 Peter chapter 9. And it's same with Paul in Ephesians 1 and 2. 
and John in his letters, all three of these great apostles all come across this very doctrine of the sovereignty of God in all things, including our salvation, and the product of it is praise. Not grumbling, but praise. And so I believe when we come to terms with this truth from the Scriptures and God allows it to bed into the very fabric of our being, our relationship with Him, then we can respond to this truth with thanksgiving. Let me read that doxology again, and then we're done, all right? You might like to close your eyes and and just ask God to enable you to come to this place, the place that Paul ends up. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Hey, I tell you what, some of the stuff we're talking about might be up for debate, but the fact that we have really gifted musicians who bless us every week is not. <laughs> yeah. Am I right? <laughs> Woo! And Albert singing tonight. Uh, come on. Yeah. You know, I just figured Albert didn't sing because he wasn't very good at it, and then he turns out to be amazing. Yeah, that's only the reason yeah. that we don't sing. I know. <laughs> we hate people like that. Yeah. All right. Sorry, Sarah. Here you go. For me to answer that? Yeah. Um, no, he's not the cause. Um, the cause of people being in hell, or the cause of people being condemned, because hell, again, is a, another in-house debate, what that actually is. I'm going to do my best not to a- open more cans of worms. <laughs> the cause of people being condemned is their willful disobedience. It's their willful desire not to bow the knee to Jesus. So I fully believe that everyone gets what they want. Mm. Um, and, and that, so, so if you just take away election, you just say, God doesn't do it that way, God doesn't choose anyone, then who goes to heaven? Nobody. Mm. We all do what we want, which is reject God Reject his salvation um, uh, and refuse to worship him. So I believe that if you went to, if you went to hell and said, we're going to let anyone out who wants to get out, no one would leave. you just need to come and worship Jesus. I believe that, as C.S. Lewis said, hell is locked from the inside. That people get what they want. Now, you get what you want, eternal life with Jesus, because God overcame your natural desire. Um, so he's not the cause, but we don't just want to get him off the hook either because the Bible says difficult things about God's role in all of this. And so, again, I, I briefly referenced Romans 9, but, um, but, but let me just read a, a short bit of this, okay? So Paul is describing God's electing love being the fundamental agent in whether someone comes to faith or not, and he talks about that, you know, God, God has mercy on who he has mercy and um, compassion on whom he has compassion. And then he says, he gets to this question, verse 22, he says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. 
in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Mm. Even us, whom he has called, not only Jews, but Gentiles. That's that, that passage, just in case you want to look it up, it's Romans 9. It's the bit he says after, you know, can the potter talk back to the, or can the pot talk back to the potter? Romans 9, 22 and following. What Paul seems to be saying is God doesn't choose everyone for salvation because in not choosing some, he makes the glory all the richer for himself and the joy all the deeper for those of us who are saved. Mm. Now let me give you a quick illustration, all right? I'm talking too much. But we, we're repulsed by that, again, because we think, well, people are, are good. Well, how can God let good people go to hell? And the answer the Bible gives is, you've got the wrong view of people. Mm. Every one of us is deserving of condemnation. Yeah. It's interesting, if, you, if you've ever seen the Lord of the Rings, and I really dislike the movies, but I love the books, and, the, the, um, and because J.R. Tolkien was a, a Christian, he... he he was familiar with this concept. And so if you, let's just go with the movie since none of you read the book, all right? In the movie, Saruman, he makes these orcs, right? And he, it's, it's very visceral, like they come out of the ground, like, like being born out of the very earth. And they're utterly depraved. They're like, just like evil. They just look evil. They do evil. They just, and every time Aragorn cuts one of their heads off, what do you do? You're like, yeah! The reason you do that is because you know the orcs are getting what they deserved. You know that justice is being done. And if we had the right view of God and the right view of humanity, we wouldn't find it hard to reconcile that truth that we just mm. outlined in Romans 9. Mm. There's, much, there's, there's the rest of our lives to grapple with these things, but I think that's... There's a framework. I think, I think C.S. Lewis once said, and I think this is very helpful, that in the end, God will always get the glory he deserves, either through Peter or through Judas. That's hard to grapple with. So through Judas dying and being condemned, God gets the glory. Through Peter running away and denying him and being restored to the rock of the church, God gets the glory. In the end, God gets the glory either through his justice or through his mercy. But the main bit is that God gets the glory. Mm. Yeah. All right. Question number two. How can we balance our view of ourselves as dead and deserving of God's wrath and yet know and be convinced <coughs> that we are God's children? Mm. Can, I, can I grab this one? I think you balance it by understanding the gospel richly and deeply and by reading out the whole section of Ephesians. Right? Because I think this is pretty clear. So this is from, this, from Ephesians 2, verse 1. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us have lived amongst them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So no one escapes that. Every single person deserving of God's wrath and justice against sin and evil. And so how can we reconcile that with the fact that we're adopted? You do it by reading the rest of Ephesians, which says, but, the glorious but, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And it goes on. You should read Ephesians 2. How do wretched sinners deserving of God's wrath become adopted sons only through Christ, only through being saved by him, only through being cleansed by him, only being justified by him, being united with him? Uh, that's how we reconcile those things. You were like this, you're not anymore. Why? Because of Christ. Stand on that. That's how you reconcile those two truths about us. Uh, yeah, and just I, I think in our experience, we, we wrestle with the tension of those two things because those two things are still 
part of our experience. So um, what did Martin, Martin Luther had this saying in Latin, um, simul justice et peccator. It means um, simultaneously righteous and a sinner. That's what we are as Christians. Simultaneously. Not, not that from one perspective I'm righteous and another perspective I'm a sinner, but I'm those two things all of the time. Hmm. Simultaneously. And so the, the triumph over my wretchedness is happening slowly as God turns me from one degree of glory to the next, but it doesn't happen ultimately until I'm glorified yeah. when Jesus returns. We could talk about this so much, like we should just start a podcast really. Um, <laughs> but the, the, the journey for the Christian is really about discovering who you truly are now. You, like something changes when you become a Christian. You were like this and now you are like this. And really the, the journey of becoming a Christian is the fact that, that you discover you're actually like this and not like this anymore. That's, that's hard sometimes, but I think it's helpful. All right, one more question. If God is sovereign over all things, including salvation, why should we need to pray? Yeah, um, if God isn't sovereign over all things, then why should we pray? <laughs> if God isn't big and glorious and majestic and holy and righteous, then it's probably not worth praying to. He's sort of standing on the sidelines like a crippled cheerleader, going, ah, oh, come to me. Oh, no, I can't move. Crap. That's not who we worship. <laughs> Do you want to add anything? I just want you to tell us more about the crippled cheerleader. <laughs> I've never met one, but I imagine that's what God would be like if he wasn't sovereign. Hmm. This, this, is, this is a problem, right? And it's hard because I want to talk so much about other issues, and like, there's enough cans of worms that have been opened. But John and I talked about open theism, right? This idea that God doesn't know the future and he doesn't know what's going to happen. But that kind of God's not worth worshipping. Right, the kind of God that's worth worshipping is the one that has created all things, who knows all things, who's crafted all things for his glory from eternity past to eternity future. That's the kind of God that you want to glorify because that's the, kind of God that can, that's the only kind of God that can give you any kind of assurance. The kind of God that I pray to is a kind of God that has 100% assured me that when he has promised me something, he can do it, he can accomplish it, and he will keep his promise. If God can't do those things, if he's not sovereign, if he doesn't have the power, if he's confused and sort of like, oh, no, I can't do that. That'll contradict something. He's not worth praying to and he's not worth worshipping. But the God that is declared in the scriptures is worth worshipping to. He is worth praying to because he will accomplish everything that he promises. Um, yeah. <laughs> Renee. Yes. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. John Calvin has this really helpful excerpt. So one, my assignment at the moment for university is um, expound the place of prayer in John Calvin's institutes. And basically, it should be required reading for every Christian. But the first thing that he starts off with is that prayer reminds us who God is. And so he has this line where he basically says that prayer isn't about God, as if God is surprised by our prayers. It's like, ah. Oh, Denise is praying to me. Oh, I didn't know that before. I have this new information that has been beamed up to me. Oh, what, what shall I do? God knows all things. And um, not only has he supplied the means for us in that somehow through prayer things do change sometimes, but they also fundamentally remind us and change us because they, rem they remind us who God is. And so they allow us to be reminded that God is all those things that often we forget when we don't pray to him. Um, but also there are means that God um, uses to secure the ends. <laughs> would, you, would you add to that? No, I, I, yeah, I'd, I would just talk about the, the cause and effect nature of the universe. God achieves things through cause and effect. He very rarely just comes down and, and bursts in and, and, and contravenes the laws of the universe. Most of the things God achieves are through means, and often the means are our prayers. And so he delights to allow us to participate in his 
bringing all things about accordance, in accordance with his will by working through our agency in prayer. Mm. And um, on top of that, I believe if you don't pray, you just won't remain a Christian. That's another good reason to pray. 